It's good to see you guys. It's very good to be back. Um, I think one of the things I thought about was I actually missed worshipping with you guys in person. Uh, I actually missed all of you guys. Um, I received a few pleasant calls, video calls from people from the VT team. I think two people accidentally pocket dialed while I was in Korea. <laughs> so I got to hear their voices like briefly, but it, it was good to hear their voices as well. Uh, and it is good to be back. Um, I just want to thank Pastor Alvin uh, for preaching the last two weeks while I was away. Uh, I tuned in. I loved his sermons. I'm sure you guys did as well. I heard a lot of po positive things uh, from different people. Uh, I actually, and I don't say this lightly just because Alvin's my best friend, uh, I actually think that Alvin is probably one of the best Korean EM Old Testament preachers in Sydney. Like, And I don't say that lightly. Um, so Alvin, if you are watching, thank you. Um, I'm sure we'll have you back here again one day as well. Um, if you are new here, welcome. Uh, I was in Korea for the last two weeks and I had to visit my wife's church. And it just reminded me uh, how difficult it is to go to a new church where you don't know anyone. Um, so if you are here, thank you for joining us. Thank you for worshipping together with us. It's great to have you guys here uh, with us. Uh, and just one more thing. Uh, and we'll play the video again after uh, the sermon. But the women's conference, uh, I don't want to give away too, de too much detail uh, or too much information. I don't think I can reveal who the speaker is yet. Um, but I think it's safe for me to say that it is a woman that's going to be speaking at women's conference. Um, you'd think, you'd hope so, that it'd be a woman. Um, I won't reveal too much, but I, I will say that when I met this person for the first time, uh, the first thing I thought when I met her and I spoke to her and I got to know her was that if we have a women's conference, we need to bring this person in. Um, so I'm very excited. Uh, there are early bird registrations taking place in person after this service. So if you are a woman, a biological woman, I encourage you to sign up ASAP. Um, get in while you still can. And on that note, we'll go to our Bible reading today, which comes from the book of Job. We're going to take a one week or two week break from, from the gospel of Mark. Uh, it's going to be a, a shorter sermon, uh, so if you're a bit tired, uh, you're in luck today. It's going to be a shorter sermon than usual. Uh, Job chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. Job chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. It's just a short passage. and The Word of God reads, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their head towards heaven. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was great. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we, we thank you for another Sabbath. We thank you that we can not only lift worship up to magnify your Son, but that our souls can be refreshed through worship. Uh, and so, Lord, as we take a, a brief break from the Gospel of Mark and we look at this book of Job, these three short verses. Uh, Father, help us to understand the significance 
of what's taking place in this passage in the wider context of Job and in the wider context of the gospel. Lord, I'm very physically tired, uh, but I pray that you would sustain me and I pray that you would give us hearing ears and seeing eyes. Help us to be receptive to your voice as we hear it through the scriptures. May you watch over the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of you guys know that I've been in ministry for over a decade. Um, I went into ministry, I'm not going to lie, I went into ministry because I wanted to preach. Uh, I didn't even consider what pastoral care would look like. I purely went in because uh, I wanted the opportunity to be able to preach the gospel. After I became a Christian, I read a lot of books, and I read through Christian history about men like Jonathan Edwards, who was a really famous revivalist, uh, Charles Spurgeon, John Wesley, and his brother Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, like amazing men of God throughout Christian history that brought revival wherever they preached. And then I used to go on to YouTube because I remember I'd always hear my mother talk about one famous American evangelist, probably the most famous American evangelist of the 20th century, and his name was Billy Graham. And if you go on YouTube, you'll be able to see all the revival crusades throughout the world that he preached at. Billy Graham, like people in their tens, if not hundreds of thousands would come flocking to see him. When he held a revival conference in Yankee Stadium, the only time in history that Yankee Stadium was filled to its max capacity, not just the seats, but there were no seats left, so they filled the entire field, the baseball field, with chairs. And even that got filled to max capacity. You can even see revival conferences, crusades that he held in Korea back in the 1950s and 1970s. Where, where Yoido Sumbukumkyoi is, that, that entire plaza was just packed as far as the eye can see. If you watch the video on YouTube, you can't even see where the gathering ends. It's just as far, you need like a binoculars to be able to see where it ends. So many people came out to seek, seek Christ, to hear the gospel, to hear the word of God preached. And I got, every time I watch that video, I get goosebumps. And I saw that as an early Christian. And I used to think, man, I want to be able to have that kind of an impact on people. I want to be able to preach like Billy. No one preaches like Billy Graham. Billy Graham is just, I think, God's gift to the 20th century. He was an amazing, phenomenal preacher. And he wasn't an educated guy. He wasn't that smart, but he preached so well. And I saw that and I thought, I want to be able to preach the way Billy Graham preaches. And so early on, even before I went to Bible college, I'd, I'd stand in front of the mirror and I'd kind of like pretend what it's like to preach, right? Keep my Bible in the passenger seat of my car while I'm driving. Like I don't even know how to preach, but I just open it and like pick a verse and like just pretend to preach in the car. Uh, and then I met Pastor Alvin at Bible college and we became best friends. We hit it off very quickly um, and we both wanted to improve our preaching. So we'd preach to each other. And we'd critique each other's sermons. Um, we spent a lot of time practicing how to preach. But then looking back at all those years that passed since I became a Christian, uh, I have to make a confession. Because 
If I look back at my Christian life from when I became a Christian at 21, compared to when I entered into pastoral ministry at about 25, I have to say that I think I had a bigger impact on people before I entered into pastoral ministry. I think before I actually started preaching is probably when I saw the most fruit from discipling and from evangelism. Because before I became a pastor, I made a lot of friends. I met people, I befriended them, and I just wanted to share and read the Bible together with them. I'd invite them. Do you want to you come to Maru with me? Let's, let's just pray together. If I met university students at church, even if it was overseas students, I couldn't speak a word of English, Alvin and I we were very intentional about becoming friends with them, helping them get settled in Sydney. And hey, let's go to Maru and pray together. We'd spend hours each week praying together, studying the Bible together, and just reading and sharing questions that we had about the Bible. And we didn't know much about the Bible. Like this, I've still got so many questions now. But we'd befriend these people, and we'd go on a journey together with them. We don't know the answer. Let's go find out the answer together. Let's go to Kurong. If we don't have money to buy the books, take photos of the pages we need when the shopkeepers aren't looking and put the books back. But let's find the answers to the questions we have and seek God together. Now, after I entered into pastoral ministry, I do see fruit. But I have to confess, it's not on the scale that it used to be for me. I had this idea that if I could preach like Billy Graham, that tens of thousands of people would just give their life to Christ. And at some point, I began to wonder, what went wrong? Why does it feel like I had a bigger impact before I went to Bible college than now? Shouldn't preaching God's word from the pulpit have the biggest impact? What changed? And I think today's passage kind of gives us some insight in answering that question. Now, one of the most distinct aspects, like I, I've traveled to a few countries now, and one thing I like to do, because I did a cross-cultural communication subject at college, and one thing that they teach you is the differences in different cultures, Western culture, Eastern culture. And one of the defining aspects of Western culture, like America, England, New Zealand, um, Australia, is this idea of individualism, this concept that you just need to live for yourself. It's more about me, that I am happy that I am wealthy, that I'm healthy, and that I'm satisfied, and I'm enjoying life. Make sure you live for yourself. And if anyone's dragging you down, cut them out of your life. You don't need toxic people in your life. Just make sure that you're living for you. Make sure that your happiness is never cramped or compromised. This is a very Western way of thinking. And I personally think it's a very unbiblical way to think. But it's something that's flowing and seeping in to other cultures that weren't originally individualistic cultures. I see it in Korea. Korea was never originally an individualistic culture. But it's seeping in. Because Koreans actually used to be a collective people. 
Even I went to Japan as well on my holiday. Japanese people were very collective people. They stuck together in communities. They did things together. They did things as families, as communities. Even at the revival conferences the, the, that Billy Graham held in Korea, if you look at what the people were doing during the service before the crusade started, they brought, like, in traditional Korean fashion, they would bring their rice cookers, they would bring, like, tubs, Tupperware containers full of kimchi and food, and they would come and sit as family on the ground because there were no chairs, and they'd eat together. And they'd look around, and if there were people around them that didn't have food, they'd share their side dishes, their panchan with them, the kimchi. Like, you have some of this. This was the collectivist style of culture that many other parts of the world once had. And I remember when I was younger and I studied like history at school, I didn't know much about the history of my country, but I remember I liked looking at the photos, especially like from World War II, Vietnam and the Korean War. And I remember I flicked over the page and I saw photos that were taken by journalists during the Korean War where the country was just left in absolute destruction. It was just rubble. There were no buildings. It was just mountains, rubble, dirt, because of all the bombs that went off. If there was a building, it was just half falling apart. But as I flicked the pages, I remember that textbook showed Korea during the war in the 1950s. But then it showed photos of Korea during the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. And what blew me away was the speed at which the Korean people, and Japan as well, that they collectively were able to rebuild their country. Like, it's astonishing how quickly they built up their nation. And today, if you look at Korea, we're one of the most technologically advanced countries in the entire world. Like, everything, service, technology, everything is just on another level. Like, it's hard to find a country that even comes close to Korea, close to what they've accomplished. And the reason I share this is because this seems to have been driven by this collectivist culture. And it's actually quite a biblical concept because we weren't made to live for ourselves. We weren't made to just live for my happiness, to make sure I'm successful. Doesn't matter what other people are going through, as long as I'm happy, as long as I'm growing, as long as I'm satisfied. That's all that matters. That's not the way we were called to live. We were called to made, or we were made to be, we were called, rather. Sorry, I'm very tired. We were called to live for God. Not for ourselves, but to live relationally with God. But just as importantly, we were called to live relationally with each other. And that's what we're going to look at in today's passage. Now, I don't know if you've ever read through the book of Job. Uh, it's not an easy read. I'm not going to lie to you. It's quite, at many points, quite a depressing book to read. Uh, but if you ever do get a chance to read through the book of Job, it's depressing, but I, I think it's an important book. If you read through the opening chapters, you'll find that this man, Job, his name was Job, not Job, Job. Um, he'd gone through some terrible things. You'll find that Job had endured insane levels of hardship. Because God and Satan, in the opening chapters, they, they have a wager. 
And the wager was whether Job would curse God if everything that he had was taken away. Because Job, back in the day, was like the richest guy in the land, the godliest guy in the land. He had an amazing family, loyal kids. He had everything. He had servants. He, like, and everyone loved Job. Everyone knew Job. They knew he was smart, rich, wealthy, generous. Like he, This guy was just like the it guy. But then in verses 7 and 8, and in the opening chapters of Job, you find that everything was taken away from him because of this wager to test him. His children were killed. His servants killed. His wealth, he went from being the Bill Gates of the world to just being nothing. And in today's passage in verses 7 and 8, we find not only has he lost his wealth, and his family, except for his wife, his wife was still alive. He lost his health as well. Verses 7 and 8 says, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. This was a very ugly thing to go through. Now, Going back to Pastor Alvin, Pastor Alvin and I share a lot of passions. Uh, we also share medical conditions. We both, both ironically suffer from the same medical condition. We both have eczema. He had it much worse than me. Uh, but if anyone, I don't know if you've suffered from eczema, it's not pleasant. Your skin goes very dry, crusty, gets really itchy. And then if you scratch it too much, it gets infected and pasty. And then you have to have antibiotics. Otherwise, it'll just get worse. Uh, Pastor Alvin had it on a much much worse scale than me. Um, if you've ever wondered why Pastor Alvin's so tanned, it's not because he goes to the beach a lot. It's it's because of his eczema. His brother's like white as snow. Um, but Alvin's, yeah. Anyways, <laughs> but anyone that's had eczema, you scratch it, and it turns red. You scratch it too hard, it starts bleeding, and it becomes pussy, and it leaks pus. It's really gross when it gets infected. Uh, after I got married, I got eczema on my back, and I just I tried I scratched it with everything. I scratched it with a pair of scissors because there were parts that I couldn't reach. It was really bad, and I remember it got infected, and I I couldn't even wear a business shirt because the back of my shirt would get soaked with pus. Like that's how bad it got, and I couldn't reach my back to apply the cream, and so I had to buy the cream and go up to my poor wife and be like, "Can you rub?" this cream onto my pus-covered back. And praise God, she, she did. She washed her hands like 10 times after, but she rubbed it, mixing the cream and the pus onto my back. It was disgusting to touch, let alone to even look at. Now, Job, in today's passage, he's covered from head to toe in these kinds of sores. It said from the soles of his feet to the crown, to the top of his head, there wasn't a part of his body that wasn't itching, that wasn't bleeding, and that wasn't leaking pus. It must have been terrible. And the passage tells us that he sat on top of a pile of ashes, scratching himself with a piece of broken pottery. How itchy must you, like, must you be that your fingernails doesn't do the trick, that you need to break off a piece of broken ceramic and just graze and cut your skin to get the itching to stop. This was the situation he was in. And he had no family left, 
except his wife? And you'd think his wife would be a comfort to him, wouldn't you? You'd like your wife to be a comfort to you if you've lost everything. But what does she say to him in verse 9? He says, it says, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Go kill yourself. It's not exactly what you want to hear from your wife, the woman you married. But this is the devastating situation that Job and his wife were in. It wasn't that long ago that Job was the richest, most well-respected. I don't know if he was good-looking, but given that he had everything else, he was probably good-looking as well. Had an amazing family, super smart. He had a lot of servants. And in an instant, it was taken away from him. And it's at this point that we're introduced to three of Job's closest friends, Eliphaz, or Eliphaz rather, Bildad and Zophar. And the book of Job doesn't go into too much detail about who these guys were, uh, but we do know that they were from different parts of the world. And they'd all made an incredibly long journey to see Job. According to verse 11, we see that their intention for traveling this long distance was so that they could comfort him and show him sympathy because they'd heard the tragic news of everything that had happened and they wanted to be with their friend and support him and be there for him. And it's important to take note that this wasn't a quick journey. Like my wife and I went on holidays to Korea. She's still there. I'm here by myself for another two weeks. Uh, she's still there. And we flew on a plane, 10 and a half hours to Korea, and then we landed in Korea for our holidays, and then my wife decided we need a holiday for a holiday, so we ended up going to Japan. And the plane ride from Korea to Japan is about three hours, which doesn't seem too bad, but then if you've just come off a plane, a 10-hour flight from Sydney to Incheon, uh, you, you're just exhausted. Three hours just feels like 10 hours. Now, for Job's friends, they didn't have the luxury of flying on Asiana Airlines. They didn't catch a train or a bus to arrive at the destination within a few hours. This journey that his friends took would have taken days, weeks, if not months, for them to arrive to see him. Now, I mentioned not much is known about these friends, but the passage does reveal to us that Eliphaz was what's called a Temanite. And it was a particular region, and the people from this region were known for being smart quite wise, like academics. And they were known for being able to give good answers to the difficult questions in life. I just came back from Sesun EM camp and I preached there and during dinner, like people would come up to me like, what's the meaning of life? And they'd ask me like difficult questions. Temanites were known for having good philosophical answers, like solid responses. And yet despite this, despite having such an intellect, when they arrive to see Job, and they see Job, they don't recognize him because of the sores, but when they recognize it's him, they see that he's scratching himself, sitting on a pile of ashes, scratching himself with a piece of broken pottery. They're so devastated at what they see that they have no words. They don't know what to say to him. All they can do, including Eliphaz, the super smart guy, when they see Job, 
just in an immense amount of emotional, physical pain. The passage says that all they could do was wail and weep for their friend. Their good friend Job, who was once the greatest guy in the East. This is the guy that God himself says, this is the most upright man in the land. There's no one like Job. This is the compliment that God himself gives to Job. And yet here he is now, a shell of the man that he once was. And verse 12 says that Job's friends tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. And let me just explain. This was like a, a way of showing sorrow. It wasn't like they just like, like sprinkled. Like it, was, it was just their way of showing. This is what they did at funerals when they were like deeply, deeply upset and in anguish. They tore their robes as a gesture of their sorrow. They sprinkled dust on their heads towards the heavens. This was how they mourned the dead at funerals. Some people think that they did this to mourn the passing of Job's children and his servants. But I don't think that's the case. Some commentators think that. I don't think that's the case. And the reason I, I don't think that's the case is going back to how long it took them to get there. It took them weeks, if not months, to get to where Job was. So by the time they arrive and see Job, Job's children and his servants are long dead and buried. I actually suspect that the reason they tore their robes, sprinkled dust on their heads, and began mourning and wailing was because when they saw their friend Job, they no longer saw this glorious man, but they saw a dead man walking. His heart might have still been beating, his lungs still breathing air, but they didn't see the friend that they once knew anymore. Now, if you read through the rest of the book of Job, and the conver it's just conversation after conversation, like cycles of conversations between Job's three friends and Job, uh, you'll find that the, the friends uh, actually end up saying some pretty horrible things to Job. Um, we know that Job's done nothing wrong to deserve this because of the opening chapters. Um, but despite this, the friends say some horrible things to him, uh, and they give him some very terrible advice. Um, they actually go as far as to say, you know what, Job, the reason God's allowed this to happen is because you're a terrible person. Uh, you must have sinned against God. That's why. That God's a just God. He, he doesn't punish people who are faithful. He punishes people that have done something wrong. You've done something wrong, so you need to repent of your sins. Uh, and we know that this is far from true. Because Job's a righteous guy. Job hasn't done anything wrong. And when you read through all 42 chapters of the book of Job, you can't help but think like to the friends, like, what are you doing? Why? Why are you saying, this is the last thing this guy needs to hear. Why are you such terrible friends to Job? That's pretty much the bulk of Job. Them just giving terrible advice, and then God shows up at the end to give proper advice. But in these three short verses of today's passage, this is the one instance in Job where you can actually applaud their friends or his friends. In these three short verses, despite what they say after that, in these short verses, you, you can actually applaud what they do. Because remember, they've 
chosen by their own volition. They could have sent a letter, a messenger, but they chose to travel from very, very far away personally to meet and comfort their friend Job. And in that moment, when they first see him, despite all of their wisdom, when they see the level of suffering that Job is enduring, they have no words. They just weep. They sit on the ground together with Job and they weep. Verse 13 says, And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. No one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was great. This for me is probably the epitome of what true friendship looks like. This for me is what the gospel lived out looks like. They don't have any words. They know that there's nothing that they can say that can make Job feel better. Nothing they can do to make Job's children come back to life. Nothing that can bring healing to his broken heart. And so they choose to do the only thing they can do. Sit with him on the ground for seven days. Sitting with their friend who was covered from head to toe, just dripping pus from every part of his body. To be with their friend who was in incredible pain, physically, emotionally, and probably spiritually, because he was probably wondering, why has God allowed this to happen to me? Job's friends weren't able to heal his heart, but they chose to share in his suffering. And in doing so, they, in my opinion, demonstrated one of the greatest acts of love that anyone can demonstrate to another person. That's why it's so powerful when we see Christ demonstrate the same act of love for us, where he chose by his own volition, not just to save us, but to participate and share in our suffering. That's what makes the incarnation so significant, that God took on humanity. He might have been 100% God, but the fact that he chose by his own volition to become 100% man so that he could feel sorrow the way we do, feel exhaustion the way we do, but to also feel pain and suffering the way we do. And when we say we need to become like Christ, you know, there, there's a lot of facets of what this can look like. At the Sesun camp, I, I shared, you know, if you want to be like Christ, we should pray like Christ. There's a lot of things that you could do in trying to be like Christ. Some people like to pursue holiness. Maybe I can live a sinless life the way Christ did. Or I should try to pursue sinlessness the way Christ did. Or perhaps grow in my knowledge of God. But if we're to look at today's passage, I would argue that one of the most powerful ways we can show the world what it means to look like Christ is to share true friendship with those around us. Share in their experiences, share in their life, and when they go through a season of pain and suffering, sharing in their season of pain and suffering. God has given us this gift of a church, us, 
He's given us this gift, not so that we can just be a group of strangers that meet at 1.30 on Sundays to sing a few songs during a worship session, hear a 20, 20 to 45-minute sermon each week. I don't know how long I preached for, but... But the gift of church was given to us so that we can become God's gifts to the world. And we do this through true friendship, by having a presence in the lives of other people. Just like Job's friends, we might not have all the right answers to life's questions, but we can become like Christ by sharing and investing our lives in other people, rejoicing when they rejoice, suffering together with them when they suffer. You know, I shared at the beginning that I entered into ministry purely for the purpose of preaching. Um, It didn't even occur to me what pastoral care was. I didn't even know what that was because every church I'd been to, there wasn't really much pastoral care. Like Koreans just kept their problems to themselves. I never really received or witnessed any kind of pastoral care. So I had no, no idea what that was. But when I first learned about pastoral care and I had people coming to me with their problems, oh man, I I realized I I don't know what to say. Like I had people coming up to me with like so many messed up problems. And they asked me, what does God think about all of this? (laughs) I don't know. And then I remember I did a pastoral care Subject, pastoral skills and methods, it was called at SMBC. I thought, oh, okay, this is going to be the answer. I'm going to be equipped after this semester to give all the answers that they need. And it was one of the most helpful subjects I did at Bible college. I would say probably top three most helpful subjects at Bible college, but it still didn't give me the answers. But one thing I did learn from that subject is that you probably won't have the answers. And sometimes it's not the answers that people need, but it's your ongoing presence as an image bearer of the risen king. Rejoicing with them when things are going well, sacrificially suffering from them when they're going through a difficult time. This is one of the most tangible ways that they can get a taste of Christ through what you do. I shared earlier that that sometimes I feel like I made a bigger impact in people's lives and played a bigger role in the spiritual growth of people before I became a pastor. And when I reflect on those days, I genuinely believe, and even as I was preparing this sermon, I genuinely believe that one of the main reasons I was much more effective back then was because I invested more of my life back then into other people's lives. You know, nowadays I preach from the pulpit once a week. I teach where I can. Um, But I think it's different when you're in ministry because people have a tendency. They they might see you as a friend, but they kind of see you as a pastor first. Whilst back then, no one saw me as a pastor. They just saw me as that guy that was an atheist but became a Christian. But I remember back then, I gained a lot of true friends. When they were rejoicing, Alvin and I, we, we did everything together back then. We sort of still do, but even more back then. Alvin and I would be rejoicing when things went well for them. If they were struggling, 
Alvin and I would pick them up and drive them to Maru. Sometimes we wouldn't tell them where we were going. So we were taking you to a good place. But we shared their burdens. We wanted them to know that we were both there for them. And now, in the 21st century, this, this concept of individualism, this culture of individualism, one thing that it's done is it's caused this word, friendship, to lose its power and its importance and its meaning to many people. Most people think that they don't need any more friends. I'm an INTJ. I'm an introvert by nature. Uh, making friends doesn't come easy for me. Or maybe you think, I just need my one circle of friends at church, and that's it. I don't need to make any more friends. But if we look to Matthew 28 and that great commission that Jesus gives to go and make disciples of all nations, you have to realize that this command can only be fulfilled if we make new friends. They have to become your friends. It's not enough to just show grace to people that are compatible with you. Not just enough to have friendships with people that you're close with, but it has to be to everyone. We have to show agape love to everyone. We have to ensure that through our friendship, through our demonstration of sacrificial love, that they get to see and experience the tender love of Jesus Christ our Lord. What we have to do is go into the world and demonstrate this kind of love because they're not going to find this kind of love anywhere else. You can't because the love that the world produces is a conditional love, but not so with the love of Christ. And the way we begin is by investing in people's lives, strangers, and becoming their friends. I'm not going to lie, I still sometimes stand in front of the mirror and preach. Because uh, I want to get rid of like bad mannerisms and bad habits. And I do still pray that my life will have even a fraction of the impact that Billy Graham did. Like, if you look at the stats of how many people heard the gospel through Billy Graham, it's like in the millions. It's insane. But I've come to realize that whilst preaching well is important, living out the gospel and building friendships is arguably more effective than preaching. What we see in Job's friends are a group of individuals that chose to enter into a suffering that wasn't theirs. They weren't the ones suffering. They hadn't lost anything. But they chose to love Job, make that long, months-long journey to see Job, to share taste in his suffering and sit with him for seven whole days. I get tired from sitting for one hour. Seven whole days crying together with him. And thousands of years later, there was another individual who took it to another level. Christ our Lord, the Son of God that entered into creation, lived the life that we couldn't live, die the death that we were meant to die, rise again conquering death and experiencing suffering on so many levels and enduring the wrath of God in its fullness. In the midst of all of this, in the midst of the gospel, 
we see in Jesus true friendship, a true demonstration of friendship as he shares in our suffering. If we desire to be like Jesus, just as he demonstrated friendship to us, we have to demonstrate friendship to people in this fallen world. We need to proactively go out and make new friends. And not just outside the church, but inside the church as well. I don't know what your relationships are like with each other. If you see someone that's rubbed you the wrong way, restore that relationship. Show grace, even if you were wronged. If you see a stranger in the church or someone new, build a friendship. Invest your life into theirs. Share in their experiences. Rejoice with them. Suffer together with them. And demonstrate the gospel life to them through your friendship, true friendship. Let's pray. Father, at our men's conference not that long ago, we got to see that in Jesus, we have the blueprint for the perfect man. We see what it looks like for someone to live in perfect obedience to the will of the Father, But we see a demonstration of true friendship. A demonstration of agape, perfect love. And even though it was the first time that the world got to see this kind of friendship and this kind of love, for some reason there is something in us that when we look to Christ, we, we just have this understanding that this is the way it's meant to be. This is what friendship, this is what love is meant to be. And so, Lord, I pray for full life ministry and for myself that we would look to this demonstration of love, sacrifice, this sharing of suffering that was demonstrated through the person and work of Jesus. And, Lord, we pray to be able to emulate that, to be serious about being like Christ in all facets, all dimensions, especially this one, so that we can make the agape love of God tangible and real to the world. So that as the name of the ministry states, that through us, people might be able to get a taste of what it's like to have full life in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.